Well, folks, we're down the line once again from Boston tonight with political author, analyst, and historian Dr. James D. Boys. I'm Michael L. Roberts. This is the American Chronicle. Monday, May 18th, 2020, and with thanks as ever for your support for this series, we continue to ride the waves of air on YouTube, Spotify, Anchor FM, all across the digital podsphere indeed, and for the first time this evening on Apple Podcasts also. Tonight, we find ourselves analyzing another jarring week in American politics with stories surrounding the US media, China, the firing of State Department Inspector General Linick, and the extent to which Trump is distancing himself from his closest pandemic advisers, all under the good doctor's political microscope as ever. I began by asking for James's analysis of the moment Donald Trump told Asian-American CBS News reporter Wei Zhejiang this week to ask China that question in response to her querying aspects of his hyperbolic pronouncements in the Rose Garden. So Trump's problematic relationships with female American reporters continues. Uh, his uh, challenging occasions of his press conferences continue. Um, what you've seen this week, I think, is particularly uh, prescient because uh, Donald Trump, of course, is speaking from home territory. He's speaking in the Rose Garden of the White House, and yet he still can't maintain apparent control over the narrative uh, of the messaging that he wants to get out. Uh, if you look at the, uh, the way that these press conferences are being held, they are very much scaled back. The social distancing that Americans are being asked to engage in uh, has been um, implemented at these events. And, and yet still Donald Trump failed to be able to control the narrative coming out of them. Uh, this, of course, fits in with his narrative of the idea that the left-wing media is out to get him. But what you saw happen this week was the idea that Donald Trump has been talking about the statistics and the mortality rates of the United States vis-a-vis -vis other nations. And uh, he was asked about why he felt that uh, this was some sort of global competition. Uh, and, of course, the fact that he was asked this by a, uh, an Asian-American woman is of uh, significance, at least it is to Donald Trump. Uh, his response initially uh, was, uh, well, you know, uh, <clears throat> they're losing lives everywhere in the world. Uh, maybe you should ask China. Mm. Don't ask me, ask China. Um, when you asked him that question, you might get an unusual answer, he said. Um, in other words, he was a president uh, responding to an American uh, journalist basically saying, don't ask me, go uh, ask China. Now, she, of course, looked at this and uh, quite understandably said, well, why are you asking me that specifically? This is a woman who was, yes, born in China, but raised in West Virginia. Um, I think Donald Trump was immediately put on the back foot uh, saying, well, you know, I'm not asking uh, anything particular. I'm not saying it specifically to anybody. I'm saying it to anybody that would ask 
a nasty question like that. And again, he's got this very petulant response. Uh, if he doesn't like a question, he will immediately uh, call it a nasty question, as though he's being asked a loaded question. He really should go back and look at questions which have been asked of past presidents, both Democrat and Republican, uh, to realize that time and time again, he is being given softball questions which are being keyed up, which if he had a little bit more nous about him, um, uh, he could really turn around and knock him out of the ballpark and um, and hit some real zingers. But he, he's got such thin skin and, and he constantly takes everything personally. Um, this, of course, was then compounded by the fact that what was meant to happen, it was that Caitlin Collins from CNN was meant to ask a question. But because um, the uh, this, this, this interchange with the president had occurred, um, rather than going to Caitlin Collins for her question, the president said, right, next. And Caitlin Collins was like, hang about a second, you called upon me to ask a, a question. And he's like, well, you didn't let me answer the question. Uh, you didn't answer the question. Uh, and then instead of continuing, he sort of cancelled the press conference yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and walked back into the Oval Office. You know, it, it's, it's a presidential tam temper tantrum, the like of which um, before this administration... You've got to go really all the way back to Richard Nixon to see any kind of examples of. Um, and what struck me all along with this presidency is the the breakdown between this administration and the press. It, it began immediately. It began on day one of this administration. And with Nixon, it took you know, a while for that relationship to deteriorate mm. that quickly. Um, but um, it really has been a tempestuous relationship from day one. And notably with American female reporters, he seems to take real issue uh, with being asked what he thinks of as nasty questions uh, by anybody. Um, uh, but female reporters certainly seem to get a, uh, a real uh, focus for, his, uh, uh, for his, his, his tirade, I think, which is of particular concern. Mm. Thinking of uh, Trump for the duration pre-presidency and uh, indeed uh, thereafter, you uh, you referenced day one there. Um, you and I are all too aware, I know, of the uh, the anti-China sentiment that has generally pervaded Trump's language for the duration. I know we've referenced media, uh, media interviews with him in the 80s when he was regularly seen to proclaim that China was doing one over on the US, as it were, in terms of trade and currency. Uh, in light of the present perceived standoff between the US and China, how has Trump's approach to China and its president, indeed, uh, altered over the course of his presidency? So what I think is fascinating about Donald Trump is uh, a lot of people think that his positions uh, have developed uh, either during his presidency or in the, the, the immediate uh, preceding months, i.e. when he was running for president. But if you look back over his, uh, his life, uh, this is, of course, someone who has not been a politician but who has very much ensured that he has been in the public domain for 30, 40 years, quite frankly. And as a result, he has made a number of statements and taken a number of positions on issues which continue to resonate as president. And one of those is to have quite a protectionist approach to American trade. Uh, during the 1980s, uh, his focus was to be honest, less on China and much more on Japan. And that was very much uh, in line with thinking at that point. Uh, Japan, of course, was seen as 
the great uh, threat to the United States. Uh, you saw this uh, not only in politics, but also in culture. Think about how many movies of the late 80s and early 90s mm. had uh, some sort of Japanese um, uh, individual or organization uh, uh, which was posing a threat to American interests. Uh, think about Die Hard, for example, and the threat to uh, uh, American um, cultural uh, values posed by the Nakatomi Corporation, for example. <laughs> think about Michael Douglas flying into Osaka in black rain and trying to get a, a Japanese uh, law enforcement agency to do anything, quite frankly, and uh, uh, almost acting like a John Wayne character, uh, suggesting that the only way to do things was to break the rules effectively. And uh, uh, if you're going to get anything done, uh, you have to do it the American way. Uh, <laughs> things like Rising Sun, for example. I was hoping, Crichton you'd, film I was hoping that, uh, you'd hit that one, yes. <laughs> yeah, with uh, a, you know, Sean Connery playing a rather interesting individual in that, uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a, a Japanese expert uh, with undistinguished background, but of course a uh, a predominantly Scottish accent. Uh, you <laughs> see Careful, this time... Um, Armani. Yes, <laughs> yes absolutely. <laughs> time and again, you see this. And uh, uh, if you look back uh, at those uh, wonderful days, those heady days of the, the late 80s and early 90s, you see it more and more, uh, more often. Trump tapped into that. Um, uh, but obviously, as time developed and you saw the collapse of the Japanese economy and the rise of China, through uh, the 1990s from really during Bill Clinton's presidency, it must be said, and onwards, um, Donald Trump turned his focus away from Japan towards the growing threat from China. And during his campaign for the presidency, that resonated um, greatly with the American electorate. And whatever reason you want to put for his eventual narrow triumph over Hillary Clinton, Certainly one of the things which I think resonated in the American heartland was this idea that Donald Trump was going to stick it to the Chinese. Uh, he was going to bring American jobs back from China. He was going to end this idea of outsourcing, of globalization, suggesting that nobody had benefited more from this than China. And of course, he had promised on day one, hour one, that he would brand China as a currency manipulator. Uh, this is something which many people have talked about, the idea that China uh, artificially maintains levels uh, of its currency uh, to make it extra competitive. And if those uh, uh, controls were removed, uh, you'd have a very, very different economic uh, environment. Now, of course, he didn't do that. Uh, and as soon as he became president, he certainly seemed to turn on a dime uh, and have a very warm relationship with uh, the Chinese leadership, uh, inviting uh, uh, the Chinese leader to, uh, uh, to Mar-a-Lago, for example, uh, on a number of occasions, and engaging in very warm relationships. Uh, again, this was another example, many people thought, of this very strange ambiguity in Donald Trump, the idea that he would embrace America's um, adversaries and alienate America's uh, uh, allies. Uh, of course, he did something similar uh, with Vladimir Putin. Um, you're seeing this resonate throughout the American presidency. Uh, and of course, you're going to see it playing out, uh, moving into the election cycle uh, when it comes to uh, challenging Joe Biden with regard to his position on a whole host of issues. Uh, because, of course, Donald Trump is very keen to make the coming six months all about uh, his enemies and not about his own shortcomings as president. Hmm. Indeed. 
Last week, we spoke about Attorney General Barr getting the General Flynn case thrown out, as it were. And when we were speaking back then, it appeared to be something of a done deal. Uh, I see this week that the State Department Inspector General Steve Linick has, uh, has since been fired. Talk us through the week's machinations in this regard and the extent to which the law is being flouted and or Democrats are attempting to do something about it, please. So with regard to um, the first point, um, when we spoke last week, uh, the situation had been that the Attorney General and the, the Department of Justice had effectively intervened in the prosecution of former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn uh, to a point where they were asking for the case to be thrown out. And uh, the consensus, certainly last week, uh, was that uh, effectively, Michael Flynn was going to be home and dry. Uh, now, that is no longer uh, the case, quite frankly. And what we have got mm. now happening is that the judge at the heart of this uh, has kind of said, well, not so fast, not so fast. This case isn't over yet. And he has to grant that request uh, for Michael Flynn to be basically uh, exonerated and for the case to close. Uh, he isn't going to do that straight away and what he has done is he has invited outside parties to come in uh, to offer opinions about whether the case should be thrown out, about whether Flynn is indeed uh, guilty of a series of uh, potential um, criminal acts effectively, including uh, lying to the FBI, lying under oath, uh, committing perjury, for example. Mm. And that is an ongoing situation. Now, I should point out that whatever happens, Donald Trump could still pardon Flynn uh, at any point. He could pardon him this afternoon. He could pardon him tomorrow. He could wait for the trial to play out and pardon him after a potential guilty verdict. He could wait mm. until the day after the election in November, and uh, whether he's re-elected or not, he will still remain president until uh, January 20th. He could, uh, quite frankly, pardon him at any point along that uh, timeline. So uh, we are seeing um, the, uh, the interesting manipulation of the American uh, political system here. Uh, by uh, this administration uh, in a way that other administrations, I think, have not done so. Uh, I think they would have been right, rightly rebuked uh, for doing so. Um, the latest development along these lines uh, is the uh, story which has broken in the last 48 hours, uh, which involves uh, not General Flynn, uh, but the Inspector General at the State Department, um, the individual who you rightly mentioned, uh, General Steve uh, Linick. Um, now, he has been uh, ousted from his job at the State Department. Uh, now, of course, the American president um, has the, the right uh, to appoint anybody within the executive branch that he wishes. And uh, as the saying goes, uh, all people serve at the pleasure of the American president and he mm. can remove them at any point, even James Comey. Uh, mm. conceded this point when he was removed as director of the FBI. But <laughs> there, there are ways and means of doing these things. And when it uh, emerges that the um, 
the individual, uh, General Linick, who has been removed, uh, had all too recently just been asked uh, to start investigating Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, for an apparent uh, uh, abuse of power within the State Department. Uh, and when you learn that this is just the latest in a series of uh, inspector generals to have been removed from their positions mm. by this administration, then you do have to start asking very serious questions, I think, about this administration and its uh, willingness to uh, intercede in ongoing investigations which might appear to be um, less than uh, um, favourable to itself and to simply remove people from office for just doing their jobs. You are starting to see pushback from Congress with regards to this. Uh, the House Foreign Affairs Committee uh, Chairman uh, Elliot Engel uh, has basically said that uh, uh, because the State Department falls under his curfew, uh, they are going to start investigations into this. Um, mm. The Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee ranking member uh, Bob Mendes uh, has also basically said the same. So uh, the, the challenge for this administration is that it it seems to constantly create challenges for itself where they don't need to have been uh, created. Uh, they can just seem to want to constantly stir up the hornet's nest here uh, by firing people, raising uh, legitimate questions about uh, um, uh, power and authority, uh, and then wondering why Congress uh, decides to get involved uh, and start investigations. Quite frankly, uh, uh, the, the actions of this administration on, uh, on far too many occasions sail not just close to the wind, but beyond uh, what would be accepted, quite frankly, by any other administration. Mm. And they are lucky, I think, quite frankly, to have a strong uh, and determined Republican majority in uh, the United States Senate, which uh, frankly prevented Donald Trump from being removed from office on the impeachment uh, uh, hearings uh, earlier in the year, which seems like a lifetime ago already, quite frankly. <laughs> uh, but time and time again, uh, will continue to come to Donald Trump's aid simply on uh, partisan grounds. Indeed. Speaking of uh, uh, the Senate there and uh, people just doing their jobs, much is made... Uh, of the ever-increasing media presence and significance of Anthony Fauci, assisted in no small part, of course, by Brad Pitt, as we've previously discussed. I note this week that after Fauci's testimony to the Senate, the sophistry of Fox News hosts shifted to painting the public health, uh, public health expert as something of a new public enemy number one, stood athwart the uh, land of the free and the home of the brave. To what extent are Trump and his advisers becoming divided as this pandemic uh, sweeps on? So one of the great challenges which has, I think, uh, continued to uh, present itself to this administration is the, 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 the schism between the president and a number of his closest political advisers and appointees and the medical experts uh, who have come on board and are routinely alongside the president, uh, either physically uh, or, uh, uh, or politically, I guess, uh, to try and talk about how this administration is handling uh, the coronavirus and what steps should be taken moving forward. And there are vast differences of opinion between these two groups. Donald Trump and his appointees are, understandably, it must be said, looking at this from a political point of view, uh, looking at the horrific numbers involved, both in terms of uh, fatalities, uh, unemployment numbers, 
and the uh, the declining uh, state of the American economy and thinking about how mm. this plays out for the election in November, which of course is the only thing, understandably quite frankly, uh, politically at least, on the minds of this administration at this point. Uh, his medical advisors, including of course uh, uh, Tony Fauci, uh, as well as others, are looking at this through completely different lenses and they're looking at this uh, not for how this will play out in the polls, how this will play in November, uh, but what the, the medical answer is here. And you have, therefore, two very competing approaches to how this should be addressed. The administration, the political uh, analysts, the, the president want to get this behind America as quickly as possible. They want mm. a return to normality. They want uh, to make sure that um, the, the, the political and personal ramifications of this are behind Americans as quickly as possible and certainly um, in the rearview mirror before the election in November. Hmm. Uh, we're we're the, back, uh, vaccine or no vaccine. Yeah. Vaccine or no vaccine, quite frankly. Um, the medical experts, quite frankly, look at this thinking, well, politics be damned a little bit. Um, if we open the American economy up back too quickly, uh, the great risk is uh, that you end up with a second wave and that second wave could well hit at the exact time in the American election, uh, mm -hmm. October, early November, quite frankly, you know, just as you move into flu season, for example, um, you know, Absolutely. Donald Trump has talked about, oh, the summer will burn this up and the sunshine will burn it up. And, you know, uh, the irony, of course, is, you know, that actually when you, when you sit down and consider what they're both saying, they both want the same thing. <laughs> they want this out of the way <laughs> as quickly as possible. Mm, um, um, and yet, and yet, and yet, um, what we see is concerns growing, I think, that Anthony Fauci is becoming a celebrity um, and nobody can be allowed to outshine the Sun King. We saw this previously, <laughs> don't forget, I remind everybody, you know, there is, you know, there is, there is a secular effect here with, with, with Donald Trump and his appointees. Think about the... Uh, Un unlamented figure of Sean Spicer, uh, uh, yes. America's Trump administration's first press secretary, uh, the individual who on day one went out there and said, oh, America, the, the greatest crowds that ever been at the uh, Donald Trump's press uh, uh, inauguration. What happened very quickly? Very quickly, he was lampooned on Saturday Night Live uh, by Melissa McCarthy, if I'm not mistaken, uh, a woman playing his male press secretary as a foul-mouthed, gum-chewing, um, obsequious uh, hitman-cum press secretary. Uh, that went on for several weeks, um, the funny side of which was never seen at the White House, and within a short time period, Sean Spicer uh, was replaced and uh, ended up on Dancing on Ice, if I'm not mistaken. Hardly a glorious end to an inglorious career, it must be said. Now, one a of the reasons... A national treasure. A national treasure. One of the reasons, of course, that he was removed was not only that he was seen to be being humiliated routinely on American television, but that um, his persona uh, had outgrown its usefulness. In other words, he had become the story himself rather mm. than the uh, mechanism by which the story got out. And I think we're seeing something similar happening with Tony Fauci. As soon as you start getting played on Saturday Night Live anyway, that's bad enough. When you get played by Brad Pitt, um, 
this takes it to a whole new level, quite frankly. Um, mm. And the risk, therefore, that his star is outshining Donald Trump's, when you consider that most of the American media here are saying, well, who should we consider to be the medical expert here, Dr. Fauci or Donald Trump? Mm. Uh, and there is clearly only one answer there. Uh, but you are starting to get this pushback, as you rightly say, from uh, Donald Trump's uh, supporters on Fox News. Uh, we saw him testify this week uh, before the uh, American Senate, albeit remotely, it must be said. Uh, but you saw a remarkable exchange, quite frankly, with Senator Rand Paul, uh, who suggested that uh, Dr. Fauci was not the end all on uh, uh, issues to do with the coronavirus, suggesting mm. that there are other experts who have a very different perspective who should be listened to, and um, uh, suggesting that he wasn't the only person that should be listened to. I don't think you're the one person that gets to make decisions, he said. Well, mm. of course, mm. he isn't, it must be said. And uh, Fauci pushed back with regard to this. Uh, I've never made myself out to be the end all and only voice in this, he said, but I am a scientist, a physician, a public health official. I give advice according to the best scientific advice possible. And um, notably, of course, uh, Senator Paul didn't stick around for the rest of uh, the testimony. He cleared off out of the Senate chamber as quick as possible. Uh, I remind you all, of, the, of course, that uh, Rand Paul uh, has uh, himself had the coronavirus uh, and has not been seen to take steps to uh, basically try and uh, prevent from spreading to other people. So you have a very, very strange dynamic at play in the United States, where unfortunately the Republican Party uh, have adopted a long-standing resentment of, uh, of facts and appear to be uh, all too willing to present themselves uh, as the know-nothing party once more in American history, uh, to their detriment and to the detriment of the entire nation. That's it for this week. Until next Monday then, this has been the American Chronicle with music by Chris Warner. I'm Michael L. Roberts. Follow Dr. James D. Boyes on the links below. Tune in Thursday to the Voicing the World noisecast. Good luck and ever onward to you all.